So I was going through some old clips earlier tonight, and I found a November 12th, 1995 book review that I wrote for the Nashville Tennessean of Bob Green's Rebound, The Odyssey of Michael Jordan. And I wrote, Michael Jordan must be a really fun guy to write about, like a cartoon, if you will. He leaps through the air with amazing grace, coming down only once in a while for Nike commercials and underwear ads and, somewhat shockingly, a baseball game or two or 162. He runs, he shoots, he dribbles. Cartoon all the way. The only problem with tunes is, for the most part, they make pretty lame biographical subjects. What's a sports book, after all, that highlights the life and times of Scooby-Doo? With that in mind, we come to Rebound, syndicated Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green's odyssey with Jordan through a season of minor league baseball. And all these years later, I have to say, what the fuck? Like, what type of little snot-nosed dick writes that? Bob Green was a well-known Chicago Tribune columnist and a far more skilled and accomplished writer than I was and would ever be. And looking back, I hate that I did book reviews because now I realize the negative ones sting and they hurt and they leave a mark on an author. And I was so young and so casual in my dumping on Green's work that it's simply unforgivable. That audacity all these years later, kills me. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Rick Tallender, the Chicago Sun-Times sports columnist, former Sports Illustrated senior writer, and author of a new collection of poetry, yes, poetry, titled Sweet Dreams, Poems and Paintings for the Child Aved. This is episode number 339. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and you're culturally irrelevant. All right, Rick. First of all, thank you for doing this. And um, I have to say, there's always sort of chatter that goes on before the podcast. And you just told me you last week you hit a deer with your car. And not only did you hit a deer with your car, it's the fifth deer you've ever hit, which has to be has to put you in the sports writer hitting deer hall of fame. I would guess so. I'm in the sports writer hot dog eating hall of fame, 12 hot dogs at uh, U.S. Cellular, when it was called U.S. Cellular, not Comiskey, now whatever it's called, guaranteed rate. But yeah, this is my fifth one. But I just found out 15 minutes ago, my car is totaled after they looked at it and everything. I drove 200 miles with the light out, with the door that I had to get out the passenger side. I'm not driving in Wisconsin ever again at night. You just can't do it. Not in the fall. I've run over a bunny once in Illinois, in fact, and felt horrible about it. What is it like to hit a deer? I would guess it's as close to hitting a human as you can get. It's not fun. You see the deer momentarily in front of you. They freeze in the headlights right in front. They come out of the ditch, out of the cornfields and what, in the middle of the night, and they freeze. They look at you at the last second. The noise, the collision noise, the metallic Flesh noise is horrible. Thank God I was in a, you know, not a big SUV, but each time I've hit one, it's been in an SUV because, man, if that thing came through the windshield, I would guess this weighed 120, 150 pound dough, a great big dough. My car, after you hit one, your car smells like, uh, not like deer, but it smells like fermented grain. I mean, it's not a good thing. And, um, man, it, it just demolishes the front of your car. I mean, really. This is going to sound weird. I'm not judging you, I swear. Do you feel worse about the deer lying there kind of dead? Or do you feel worse about your demolished car in the moment? 
I mean, obviously killing an animal is not fun, but I feel, <laughs> tell you the truth, I feel worse about my car. There deer are everywhere and there, this is rutting season and hunting season will be coming up and the deer will pretty much disappear. They're very smart about that. They will go into cover and all that. But um, I hit this when you're going 60 miles an hour on a two lane, you know, blacktop in the back country, 200 miles through Wisconsin, uh, the deer disappeared. I mean, you hit it and it flies. It went over the uh, the driver's side off that edge because you swerve. You don't swerve too much, Jeff. I'm telling you, I told all my kids, you see an animal, hit it. You don't want to, but people swerved and killed themselves. So they didn't hit a bunny or a squirrel or a, a possum or raccoon. But a deer is a scary thing because uh, your first thought is yourself. I mean, you could die. That thing comes through the windshield. It's all over. This thing never found the deer. I mean, it it just van it's dead as a doornail and it's gone. It was in the, I don't know where it was. I backed up. It was five minutes before anybody passed me in either direction. That means that they're going 60. The closest people were, I'm in the middle of a 10 mile section with no humans around. I mean, it's to stop there to the side of the road with your car damaged like that. And you're not on a freeway. It's pretty spooky. All right. So wait, before you get into a lot of things, I like digging into old newspaper archives past to see what I can find about certain guests. And this is one of my favorite things I found. November 19th, 1976, New York Daily News. They had a writer named Larry Fox. And Larry Fox in a column wrote, new book out called Joe Namath and the Other Guys by Rick Tellender, a story of last year's disaster. And it has one good line referring to the sports writer as having, quote, the look of a smiling economics professor and the pen of an assassin. And he wrote, how would someone like that review this book? Simple, overpriced at $7.95. <laughs> well, listen, inflation, okay? That's probably like 1976. That's like $25 right now. I'm going to go way off the path here. You know, obviously your most famous book is Heaven is a Playground. You've written for a gazillion years. You've written for, you know, you write your columnist for the Sun-Times. You wrote for SI for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. You did write in 1976, Joe Namath and the Other Guys. Mm -hmm. Why did you write Joe Namath and the other guys? Well, first of all, the season before, I mean, Heaven is the Playground, it was just getting published, hadn't even been published yet. It was coming out in 1975, at the start of 75. It was uh, with Holt Reinhardt, and the editor there was a Jets fan. And the, the year before, the Jets had won something like six of their last games or they'd done something. They'd come from nowhere. Joe Namath was there. Everybody still was thinking, you know, New York is always looking for a quarterback. The Jets always were. I think they won the preseason games and the first game of the season. Anyway, the thought was this team is a Super Bowl contender. Instead, I go there with this team that is completely out of control and they end up three and 11 it was insane, Jeff. I I urge people, just get that book somewhere. If you want some laughs, uh, I mean, serious things that were laughing, uh, like offensive linemen. We went out in Long Beach out there on Long Island, and I've never seen anybody eat a glass. And one of the guys I'm sitting next to did, Gary Petz. And I said, he wasn't drunk or anything. Just, you know, I think I'm going to eat this glass. So that was something that I saw. I saw at one point I was around so much. Ken Ship had been brought in as the coach after they fired Charlie Winner. And uh, I like Charlie, but God almighty. And Ken went to Namath and he said, is this a new guy? Is, is this a new guy on the team? Because I'd be out all the time. It's like, Joe said, no, no, he's a writer. They let me, I had my own locker in the locker room. 
the 70s and the early 80s were the golden, golden age of the reporter embedded with a team book. Peter Golenbach with the New York Yankees, right? in the Bronx Zoo with Sparky Lyle, just an example, you know, like where they would let you. And the Jets basically said, you said, I want to do this book about your team. And they said, all right, come on in. Yeah, exactly. Come on in, whatever you want, do whatever. I I did have my own locker. They ran out of some players partway through the season. So they I would put on practice stuff, uh, you know, sweatshirt or whatever, and would be a placeholder like on defense. I'd be the, a defensive back. You know, I was only out of school four years, you know, and I played football. So not that I was going to run patterns or anything, but I remember this pretty well, what was going on. And so I'm out there. That's why Ken Ship thought I was a new player. I'd grown a beard, too, I think, just for the hell of it, because it was so crazy. And, um, yeah, it was like, whatever you want, the complete run of the place. And I remember going in to see Charlie Winter in his office after he'd just been fired. And he was a nice guy. And, he, and you know, he said, Rick, there's three things everybody in this world thinks they can do. And I said, what, Charlie? And he said, they think they can write a book, they can star in a movie, and they can coach a football team. And he wasn't bitter about it. He just had come to that conclusion. And I thought, that's very interesting. You know, and good luck with the rest of your life, Charlie. I'm still here. You're gone. And Kent Ship comes in, and the, for, I think it was the last game of the season almost. The Jets went to San Diego to play the Chargers. And so the night before the game, <laughs> me and, and a few of the other guys went to Mexico. I got a picture of a couple of us in a donkey cart, you know, wearing those sombreros and stuff. This is the night before the game, uh, Sunday night, and it was uh, uh, a Monday night game. So, you know, no big deal. But I also remember seeing Ken Ship talking to Namath in the courtyard of the hotel we're staying, and he's pretty stern, and Ken always smoked a pipe. And he, I think he suspended Joe for the first quarter or whatever for being out too late. <laughs> I, Everything about that season, it was so much fun. It was so crazy. And because they didn't achieve success, nobody read the book. It is something, man. Was it a better book that the team was a disaster than had they gone 12 and whatever and reached the AFC championship game? Well, no, just because the readers wouldn't be there. Maybe they would have done all the same things. I'm not so sure to this day if the behavior of the team was the reason they didn't do well or they didn't do well, and so they behaved the way they did. There was two guys who wrestled in the locker room, and the, the locker room floor was uh, had carpet, but it was cement underneath that. And one guy went down and tore his knee up. And, of course, he said it happened in a game, but they were just grappling like two guys, you know, like uh, sumo wrestlers. So would they have done that if they'd gone? They only played 14 games back then. They'd gone 12-2 and two and made it. The AFC Championship? I mean, no. If if Namath had this had been his swan song and he back to the Super Bowl, you know, guaranteeing a win, that would have been huge. But, um, you know, I, I didn't know how the season was going to turn out, so I wrote what was there. And, you know, had good friends on that team, really. I liked a lot of those guys. Was Namath a likable figure? Very likable. Yeah. Very likable. When I saw him, he was not this playboy, gambling guy, whatever. He had a house in, is it Garden City? Is that, I think that's it. This is a long time ago. And I, I went to his house. He said, yeah, let's go to my house. It was a, like a three-bedroom ranch house, regular thing in a regular neighborhood. I remember he opened the refrigerator and there was like, uh, you know, some mustard and one beer and three cans of Skull. And uh, we went to a gas station and the guy said, hey, how you doing, Joe? And he said, good. You know, I hope you guys, you know, get good things going. He said, yeah, whatever. Talk to people. 
And uh, the thing you really look forward to is going to Bill's Meadowbrook across the highway from the practice field. And they had a uh, kangaroo court. Can you imagine million dollar guys doing that now where the whole team would show up and John Riggins would be up there and maybe, uh, uh, God, what was his name? Winston, I don't know, one of the offensive linemen or whatever. And they'd hand out, they would make judgments. So-and-so talked too long to Paul Zimmerman of the New York Post or Daily News. Therefore, we're fining him $5 and he's got to buy a shot for everybody in, you know, in the place. And Joe would sit in the back of the room laughing it up, just chuckling, having a good time, enjoying the camaraderie. And I, I really did like Joe. If you ever read a, a great book, uh, the one by Mark Kriegel about Namath. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Oh, man, is that that's a Dostoevsky and father and son epic. And it's fabulous. Mark talked to me. He said, Rick, you got to talk to his dad, Joe's dad, because I went to Beaver Falls and met Namath's dad. And he wanted to know what he was like. And I sent uh, Mark all my notes, my, you know, everything said, you know, whatever you can use it. But Namath was a very likable guy. To me, just a wonderful guy. Yeah, probably had a drinking problem, but a great guy. Yeah. Wait, so in, uh, in 1976, you came out with Heaven is a Playground. It's funny. I wrote a book about the 86 Mets called The Bad Guys One. And yep. it's definitely my biggest selling book and the book I'm best known for and the book I'm reminded of the most. And um, it's not one one gazillionth of the phenomenon that heaven is a playground was. And uh, sometimes I get tired of talking about the bad guys one. Cause I feel like I wrote in a different life. And I wonder you have this book. It became a movie. It was an enormous, enormous seller. SI ranked it the 15th best sports book of all time. When they did this 10, 20 years ago, this may sound weird. Can you even relate to that book and that experience anymore? Or did it happen so long ago that it just feels like something you've been telling a story about for four decades? You know, both things, Jeff, I remember it so vividly, so well that summer, everything about it, sleeping on a sleeping bag on a guy's hardwood floor, going to different parks with Rodney Parker, the the kind of street agent, talking with Albert King, the 14-year-old phenom then, who was so sensitive, six foot six already, being recruited by colleges and all, he hadn't even started high school. I, I remember so much about it. I remember being stopped with some of the guys in my car. First time I'd ever seen, you know, being stopped for driving b- black. You know, even though they weren't driving on the New Jersey Turnpike, I remember those things so well. And yet it was a different human being. It's not me. It was uh, there's this sense. I'm sure you felt it that once you write a book, you've released it into the world. And it's like it's like a child that is another thing. It's a little birdie you kicked out of the nest. And at times I don't even take pleasure in that because it's like, no, that's not me. I I did that. That is another human being. I'm I'm proud of it, but I can't relate to it in that way. Uh, there's a sense also that, that the, the making of a book is what's really important. What happens to it afterwards, you hope, whatever. But there's a sense, almost like a depression that sets in when you've done something and it's over, you know, awards, whatever. None of that means anything because it was a process. For me, anyway, never cared about awards and all that crap. Because if you don't care about writing, and somehow getting that out of yourself, whatever the truth might be, whatever it is that makes you want to be one in the first place, if that isn't satisfying in itself, then you're on a treadmill to nowhere. And you're on that that search for fame and money that it takes people their lifetime. Maybe they never realize it. It leads nowhere. 
the, the journey is all, the process is all. And yet I will also say I'm still friends with my team, the Subway Stars. Those guys are in their 60s now. And we had a big reunion in Brooklyn two years ago and 40 guys from the park, from Foster Park came and just to see my buddies. And I talked to them, one guy, you know, they've moved all over the country. One guy became a stockbroker. I said, you guys are just a bunch of degenerate, you know, losers, hangers on at the park. Nobody wanted you guys. You're 14, 15 years old. The fact your parents let you hang out with a, you know, 25 year old white dude, it was kind of like perverted in itself. It's like, he said, yeah, well, you know what, Rick, we kind of vetted you. We we figured you weren't dangerous. We, In fact, they didn't know what I was doing there. And then I told them I was writing a book and they like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, and, and same with me. It, it almost didn't get published. I mean, it was this close to not getting published. So they protected me. Everybody at the park protected me. I was never in danger. Other guys were in danger. There were shootings and, you know, a lot of bad stuff. That's a long-winded answer to your question. Do I feel that that's me or do I feel a connection to the book? And it's very odd. I can look at it like something that somebody else wrote. We had a similar experience, which is I wrote a book that became a TV show. You wrote Heaven is a Playground, which in 1991 became a movie. And uh, I have the Roger Ebert, your fellow Chicagoan, you know, uh, guy there. And his review, he gave it one and a half stars. And he wrote the movie, <laughs> the movie meanders and loses its way, drags to a halt when it should be most exciting and goes through strange shifts in tones and style. It's pretty clear the filmmakers never sat down and took a cold, hard look at their script, asked themselves which way they wanted to go and why. And it is funny because I was telling you before we started, I just had somebody lambast me about a certain certain depictions on uh, Winning Time, the show based on Showtime. And I was like, look, man, I, I only have so much power. And I wonder when you had the movie come out 20 something years after the book, are you like, this sucks? Are you like, send me the paycheck? Uh, listen. The movie was entirely different. There, there were a lot of legal things they had to do. They ran out of money, all the things that happened. Making a movie, I'll tell anybody, kids out there, you want to make a movie, all the fun part is writing the script and talking about this location. If you get money, you'll make the movie. You get a lot of money, the odds are you'll make a better movie. But don't start doing, I'm making a movie and not have any way to find it. You're not going to be like Spike Lee and do do the right thing using your credit cards, okay? you. There's so many things things you can't do because you don't have the money. Yep. The scenes that were supposed to be on the subway, they did like on a sidewalk because it just cost too much money. So anyway, Randy Freed was a director. He did the best he could. It had already taken 13 years to get to where it is. Nobody at that time wanted to do a, a book, I mean, a movie about basketball and especially not about street basketball and especially not about black athletes. There were people who optioned it. Jeff, and they changed all the subway stars. They'd be like a Puerto Rican kid and a, a white kid and a rich kid and, you know, get this kind of rainbow coalition because, no, no, we can't have, they can't be all black. This We can't do that. And they had a love interest for me. I mean, all this stuff that was, I hate to say so Hollywood, but that's what it was. Also, Cisco gave it two and a half stars. <laughs> I got a random one for you. So um, you wrote for Sports Illustrated. I hate to make you sound old by saying this, but I, That's all I right. did, I'm old. I did grow up reading a lot of your stuff in SI. And I would argue that my favorite Sports Illustrated story of all time was written by you. Certainly a story that had an impact on me, which is you played football at Northwestern. You were a defensive back in Northwestern. You, uh, you were drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. You never played in the NFL. However, 
1983, a league comes along, the United States Football League. And at the time, you're a writer for Sports Illustrated. When you wrote a piece about going to camp with the Chicago Blitz of the USFL, and I just want to read the lead real quick. The, the headline or the title of the story was A Final Farewell to Football. I freaking loved every moment of this. And he wrote, I didn't want to see the press. Not now. Where would those pencil wielders be lurking? In the lobby? The hotel bar? Not the bar, because the reporters would know that we players weren't allowed in there. On the first day of camp, some NFL dropouts had set up there. And that night in his first speech, George Allen had told us to get our alcohol elsewhere for the good of, quote, the club's image. Allen is not only coach, but also a co-owner of the Chicago Blitz. And he wanted us to be the cleanest team in the United States Football League. I walked cautiously down the hallway of the Phoenix Westcourt Hotel toward the front desk to check out. As I turned the corner, someone called my name. It was Brian Hewitt of the Chicago Sun-Time standing with another writer. Did I want to join them for dinner? No. What's up, Brian asked. Nothing, I said. I've retired. They were the first reporters to know I no longer played football. And it was about your awesome, fantastic, wildly cool experience in camp with the USFL and getting cut. Now, I'm just kind of fascinated because I've loved this story for 40 years and I've never really asked you about it. What do you remember about it? That was a long time ago. What I do remember is having these dual feelings like, okay, you're a writer, you're on the inside, you got to hang out and talk to George Allen and, you know, take notes kind of surreptitiously and have buddies on the team and like, okay, this is journalism. On the other hand, I was at that time, I was 33, I think. And um, it's like, you know, maybe this is the USFL. Maybe I'd worked on getting in shape. Maybe I could make this, you know, maybe this would be that last little dose of, uh, you know, adrenaline that you need to finally put the cork in this athletic thing that had been a big part of my life. And so when I did get cut, it was kind of like, oh, shit, I, I felt bad. I mean, I felt depressed in that way. And I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. I wanted to get my brain right. And for a, at a minor level, I went through the feeling that every athlete, even all pro players, almost always get at some point when somebody comes in and says, hey, uh, you know, um, we're going to make some changes here. And, uh, you know, I think maybe it's time for you, uh, you know, to think about other career choices. You know, it's been good. I remember Gary Fensick was a great player for the Bears. I think he played 13 years. He made the Pro Bowl. They won a Super Bowl. And I knew he was getting old. And I remember when he got cut, finally, he was shocked. I wasn't shocked. I mean, I knew Gary and I thought, well, yeah, it's going to happen. But he was absolutely stunned. So it happens no matter how obvious it is. Guy, that was something. George Allen, what I do remember about that, he went to a prison and I got to go with him to check out some some prisoner who has mother and he had written all these letters. I can run to 40 like this and whatever. I think I was just a, a prison meathead. You know, I mean, when you're in there and all you do is lift weights all day long. I've been to a lot of prisons because of sports. There's lots of those guys in there. But anyway, um, Jeff, I had not thought about that. I think I kept it out of my brain because it kind of, it kind of did hurt. It was, I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right. My oh. sacrifice helped somebody. So 30 years ago, I was a student at the University of Delaware. And my roommate was a guy named Scott Capro. And he was the biggest Elvis Costello fan I'd ever known. And in 1993, Elvis Costello came out with an album called The Juliet Letters. And it was a string quartet album. And I remember Scott Capro being like, this is weird. And then he listened to it and actually genuinely enjoyed the Juliet letters. And it was so out of left field. It was like the weirdest thing ever. And a few months ago, you tell me I have a book coming out and I think, oh, this will be interesting. I wonder what it is. Basketball, Walter Payton, the Bears, Northwestern football. 
and it's called Sweet Dreams. And it is a collection of your poems with friends who are artists doing the illustrations. And it's freaking beautiful. And I just want, I'm just going to say real quick, I'm going to read. You had a poem called Solstice, December 21st. And you wrote, the violet sky, the trees of black, the ground of white reflecting back, the faintest, sweetest, softest tune of winter peace unto the moon. And yet another one called Morning Glory. Oh, little girl in the wakening dawn, do you see the jewels that sparkle the lawn? Do you see the glow? Do you see it grow? Do you see the colors the angels have drawn? Oh, little girl in first morning light, did you have a safe and wonderful night? Did you travel far? Did you touch a star? Did you sail the sea of purple and white? Oh, little girl, what goes through your mind? Do you see the good in the things that you find? Do you see the face? Do you feel the grace? Do you know the world is gentle and kind? And it's beautifully illustrated. It's beautifully written. And I think there's a question that hangs over this whole thing, which is why the fuck is Rick Tallender, noted sports writer, releasing a book of poems and illustrations? Yeah, I know. It's, it is out of left field. Uh, first of all, I studied poetry in college. I was an English literature and creative writing major. And uh, much to the chagrin of my football coach, who wanted everybody to be a you know phys ed major. And um, I was really sick 30 years ago. I had this stomach thing and nobody could figure out what it was. Man, I, I was in bad shape. I was in a hospital for two and a half weeks and didn't eat that entire time. Had all these tubes in me. They finally figured out, yeah, a ruptured appendix and infection all throughout my uh, lower intestine. It was, I mean, it's terrible. I suppose I could have died. So I lost a lot of weight and I was so nauseated that whole time that I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't stand the smell of the nurse's perfume. I couldn't stand sounds. It was horrible. I mean, I thought I was going to go out of my mind. And uh, so anyway, to soothe myself, first of all, I thought about some poor kid being in this condition and our kids like that in hospitals all over the country. And if anybody's ever had a child who was really sick like that, your heart goes out. There's nothing you can do. So I thought, okay, I'm writing these poems in my head. I could memorize them. I didn't write them down. I could memorize them because I had hours and hours and hours on end just to think. Uh, it was awful. I didn't never want to go through it again. I mean, I uh, finally, they did surgery, took out all this stuff, this junk, and I was out of there uh, like two days later. But uh, they couldn't diagnose it. So that's where it came from. And I thought... With each, each one of these poems, I have a vision in my head of what the art should look like. So it took 30 years of finding the right artist. I started with some friend artists that I knew, and it grew to include artists in four different countries, artists I don't know, I would, but I would talk to each one of them on the phone. I would send them a sketch. Uh, we'd go back and forth. And these were some, some great artists, the uh, artists in residence at the Field Museum, Museum of Natural History in Chicago, uh, a woman who did the first Wonder Woman for Marvel Comics. Uh, the poem you read, um, one of them was uh, the uh, uh, solstice, December 21st. That guy, I think it's Julian Allen. He did so many paintings for the New Yorker. I think he might have even done that for Sports Illustrated. I didn't know them, but I wanted one full page of a painting and one full page of just the poem. And uh, 42 different paintings, 40 different, 42 different artists. Two of the paintings are artists unknown. I found these paintings and said, I got to include them. But basically, I wrote a poem, and then some artists would do a painting to fit it. So it was this interconnectedness made it more than a book for me, Jeff. 
Considering we're in a business where, and you've certainly been in a business where you write books and you hope to sell books and you want to make the list and this list and blah, blah, blah. When you write a book like this, do you give a shit at all? Is it about that even slightly? No, it can't be. It, it couldn't be. Nobody wanted to do it. No publisher. I didn't really work at it. My agent, Lois Wallace, died about seven, eight years ago. I never got a new agent, you know, so uh, this is just something I was going to do. And in fact, a couple thousand copies have already been bought, you know, this huge discount. I don't even make any money off it for Ronald McDonald houses. Uh, five in Chicago, one in Peoria, one in Springfield, three in St. Louis. And there's other ones all around. And I just spoke with a woman yesterday who works with Lurie Hospital here in Chicago and has connections with kids' hospitals all throughout the country. And there are something like 370 Ronald McDonald houses throughout the world. So this to me was always just like, yeah, I'll get it out there. I'm way beyond book lists or, you know, if it reviews, whatever. I hope people like it. I I really put my heart and soul into these poems. They're done with meter and rhyme. And some of them are fairly sophisticated, fairly sophisticated ideas, like little kid thinking about a prism and the sunlight that comes through the prism and separates on his wall or her wall every morning while she lies in bed and wonders out of that colorless light, where did all these colors come from? And wondering then, am I like the sun? Have my hues begun? Am I going to be as colorful as the sun? So there are abstract thoughts like that, that I hope little kids and adults can appreciate. I hate to ask this in the cliche, lame way, but is it the same muscles used writing poetry as it is writing a column about the bears or is it complete apple and orange thing? You know, it's all word. To me, I chose the English language is my palette, like an artist chooses different colors. You know, we're going to use acrylics, oil, whatever. I chose the English language. That's I'll live and die with it. And the more I can learn about the English language, which I learn every day, the, the more I see the, the widening of that palette, the different colors. It's all the same thing, whether I'm writing about the Bears, you know, needing a quarterback or your brain just shifts and you write a poem and it's still words. I'm still dealing with the English language. I'm not dealing with, you know, hieroglyphics. I'm not dealing with another language. I'm dealing with this thing that I chose. So in that regard, it's just the same. But of course, there's a shift. Sometimes I'd be writing a column and in the middle of a column, an idea for a, a poem for kids would hit me. You know, our brains go all around. I mean, mine is, you know, I probably ADHD, million things going on at once, you know, get scattered, do this, that, and the other thing. I, I'm sure you feel it. It's hard to focus. The hardest thing in the world is to focus on a book for six months. I mean, it's like, uh, God was some, some guy said, what's it like writing a book? And he said, eh, it's like being stuck in your zipper for half a year. And that's what it feels like, but it's what I, what we chose, right? We didn't, I didn't choose to be you know, writing scripts. I didn't choose to, I, I chose to write books for whatever reason. Some things affected me when I was a kid and that's what I wanted to be. I never told anybody, but being able to write these poems to me was like being able to exercise another side of me. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, oh, that's the name of the podcast. A quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my dad, Stan Perlman, who's wearing a throwback Herschel Walker New Jersey General's jersey from RoyalRetros.com. Dad, I'm confused. Why Herschel Walker? You know, there just aren't that many Jews who play professional sports, so I wanted to support one of our greatest. Dad, Herschel Walker's not Jewish. Herschel Schmoyle Walker, he most certainly is. 
I went down to Wrightsville, Georgia in 1977 to attend his bar mitzvah at the Wrightsville Ramada. Pickled herring was served. Wonderful time. Dad, maybe it's senility, but Herschel Walker definitely isn't Jewish. He's Christian. He loves Trump. He thinks the earth is flat. Why ruin an old man's dreams? You still work as a sports columnist at the Sun-Times. You know, the Bears once again suck, and you write a lot about the Bears, and Justin Fields seems pretty mediocre, and he just got hurt, and he'll be back, and blah, 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 blah. Do you still give a shit? Well, I can tell you this. People say, hey, Rick, I got great tickets to go see the Cubs play. It's in the third row. You want to go? And I'm like, no, I think I got a dentist appointment. I'd never want to go to another game. I don't even want to go to my grandkids' games. I don't want to tell them that. You know, it's like, don't you want to see little Nick play in his flag football thing? No. (laughs) But on the other hand, the human circus, the human arena never, uh, never fails to excite me. And you brought up Justin Fields. And I'm fascinated by what's going on with this guy. You know, I think he's a failure. He's fast as can be. But uh, the one thing I found through my whole writing career, Jeff, it's almost a half century. It is is that the athletes, the humans, haven't changed at all. I don't care if you're Travis Kelsey and you're hanging out with the biggest star in the world, you know, and everybody, my my daughters, oh, my God, he's, he's with Taylor Swift. Oh, God, it doesn't matter. I guarantee you, I don't know him, but Travis Kelsey is the same as, I brought up John Riggins in the past, so the same as, as Joe Montana was, the same as Johnny Unitas in, in their essence so that has never gotten old to me can you still be at a bear game and find it and grow i'm not saying the bears because of the bears and they stink mm-hmm. i just mean can you be at an nfl game and still find yourself engrossed in the action of it all yes i can because what i always like growing up was i wanted to play the games i didn't want to watch them people said oh god what cards did you collect and i collected some baseball cards because they were pretty and we also we'd put them in our uh, you know the all star ones were red and if you're national league and or blue if you're American league and I liked looking at those colors and uh, we'd put them in the spokes of our bike to make a noise you know brrr, like a motorcycle but I didn't watch games I didn't give a damn I didn't I wanted to play it I would play anything any sport rather than watch a game I remember I almost missed the um, uh, NCAA championship game in New Orleans because I was playing bas- pickup basketball with guys, and it was more fun than anything in the world. It's like, the hell with this national championship game. This is great. So um, I never was nuts about watching a game. I do like the drama of them, the unknown. I love seeing, you know, when teams come back. I like to pick a team that I'm rooting for, the underdog, for whatever reason. Maybe the quarterback, you know, looks inept, and so you root for that team. Or maybe it's you're rooting against Ohio State no matter who they play, unless they're playing Michigan, then you can't root against anybody because you hate them both or you hate Notre Dame, you know, those kind of things. So I, I do enjoy that part of it, but a um, little bit gets burnt out of you with age. <laughs> you wrote a, you wrote a column for the Sun-Times four years ago, and it was an ode to Sports Illustrated. You called it doing the right thing. Uh, your lead was, I have a photo that somebody took with a disposal camera of a bunch of us Sports Illustrated guys standing bedraggled, sweaty and parched in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven store in Orlando, Florida from almost 25 years ago. We just finished playing pickup basketball on an outdoor asphalt court at midday somewhere in a jungle park. And if you'd said we looked like a wandering herd of grateful dead pilgrims who needed to be kept away from the cash register and helium balloons, I couldn't have disagreed. 
but we were just happy, innocent dudes lost in the camaraderie and splendor of both covering sports at the highest level and playing them at the best bud level. Back then, SI was rocking as the coolest sports magazine in the world, and we were embedded in the grandeur of its imprint like small stones in a championship ring. SI circulation in the early 1990s was around 3.5 million with a pass-along rate. Think multi-person families, dentist waiting rooms, airplane bins, health and clubs and the like of somewhere north of 23 million, maybe way north of that. Being on the cover of Sports Illustrated was a proud feather in the ball cap of any great athlete and coach. And the amount of times a person was graced on the cover because of a collectible number like Pro Bowls or MVP awards. And you write this beautiful ode to Sports Illustrated. And you and I both worked at SI. I would say you were there in more of the glory days than I was, but I do feel like I had a good taste of it. Um, I'm going to throw a big softball at you, and it's one of my favorite questions to ask people. What was it like to be a senior writer at Sports Illustrated in the magazine heyday? Well, first of all, that photo is a great one. I don't know. Were you there then, Jeff? You weren't yet. I got there in 96, or I got there a year later. Man, you know, I just met Steve Russian, and he was playing with us. He wasn't in that one, but he would be another one in Arizona. And this guy, this tall guy, was either the, the craziest person I'd ever met or the wittiest. And it turns out he was the wittiest. And, you know, Russian is... Oh, my God. All you want to do is go to a bar, give him a beer and get him on a rant about anything. And you'd be falling on the floor. So anyway, the guys around, you know, Rick Riley's there, um, uh, Alex Wolf, uh, Gary Smith, that photo. I just love that photo. Um, so th the people was one of the big deals. But being there during the glory years, there was no competition. It was the internet destroyed everything. And I won't even say destroyed it. Maybe it made the world better. I won't get into that debate, but it destroyed Sports Illustrated. It destroyed newspapers. We don't need them anymore because everything's instantaneous. But at that moment, the only sports full color magazine that came out weekly in the whole world was Sports Illustrated. And they would do anything. Uh, expenses meant nothing. We didn't get paid all that much, but you know, I would get letters to please spend more money. My uh, expense account was still had like three or four thousand dollars to go on it for meals and you know entertainment, and we only got two months left in the year. So we knew that we were respected, and we were at the pinnacle of the the writing biz. I didn't want to be a newspaper writer. I wanted to, I mean, Sports Illustrated was it, but there was also a tremendous amount of pressure. I felt it because everything you wrote, no matter what it was, could be killed. It didn't matter who you were, anything and anybody. And every one of those writers there has had one of their stories killed, which is dismaying. You, you put your guts into it. So every time when I wrote, man, it was like, oh God, I hope this, I hope they like this. I hope they like this. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I'm sure you do. And you never knew. You just never knew. And sometimes they say, well, it just doesn't quite work, Rick. You know, and other ones, they say, oh, yeah, this is great. And you thought, really? Or this is good. You know, so that that ambivalence was a very tough thing. But um, there was no competitor. So, what, you know, if you left Sports Illustrated, what would you leave for? You know, I did a story on Barry Bonds and I was so proud of the story. I got Barry Hoffer had done the story that caused Barry Bonds not to talk to SI. And somehow, six or seven years later, I got Bonds to talk. And we sat down and I interviewed him. And I was feeling so great about everything I had accomplished. And the next morning, I don't know if you had Mike Bevins as an editor when you were at Sports Illustrated. He was a rough one. He called me 
And he said, Perlman, if we wanted to give Barry Bonds a blowjob, we could have brought him to New York. He didn't hold anything back, did he? You're right. You never knew. You could feel amazing about his story. Oh, my God, I nailed this. And they would kill it. And you could think, oh, that was a pretty ordinary Braves-Cubs three-game series story. And they don't change a word. Yeah, well, that's it. Because these people sat there, the red pencil, the blue pencil, you know, the editors, the layers, and people's opinions of things that can be, you know, somebody says, this is the greatest book you've ever read. And somebody else will say, oh, that book was terrible. I remember Lee Montville was there for a while. And Lee's thing was always, you know, wry, witty comedy. <laughs> yeah, Lee had this way. He said, you know, they told me that this isn't funny, but, you know, what's funny? <laughs> and we you couldn't even, we couldn't even define what humor was. So, um, and that's an opinion, right? Somebody yep. will fall out of their chair laughing at a joke and somebody else will say, that's disgusting. So that was always there. <laughs> that was always there. And the worst thing I can tell you was to have a, a, a story that wasn't scheduled to run for a month or so is like an evergreen because that might get pushed out away and away and then just die a slow death, like sink into the tar pit like a dinosaur because Every week, something new would come up and they say, well, we got to put this on the cover. So we're going to push that back another week and then another week and finally be like, you know, it's not quite relevant now. But that was horrifying. One of my first articles ever, maybe my first ever, I pitched the story. Archie Moore, the boxer, his daughter, Jay Marie Moore, was a, was becoming a boxer. I pitched the story. I went out to interview her. I wrote it. They laid it out. I was so thrilled. It got bumped. We're going to run it next week. We're going to run it next week. We're going to run it next week. Jay Marie Moore has probably not thrown a punch in 25 years and the story never ran. And you know, if they had a great photo, you never knew what was going to be on the cover. You'd tell an athlete, because they wanted to know, am I going to be on the cover? And he said, yeah, they told me this is going to be on the cover. And then you're, they're not. And, you, and you're like, oh, shit, I got to go back, talk to this person. It was awful. But here's the other thing you step into. Like I would go someplace and a coach, Maybe it'd be Jimmy Johnson or something at Miami, and he'd be pissed off. And I'm walking, I say, what? I haven't done anything. Yeah, that asshole Riley was here, you know? <laughs> and like, okay. And I'm sure they followed in my footsteps. Yeah, that, that goddamn prick telling her was here. Rick down. I'm not talking to you. And you say, well, I'm not that guy. I didn't do anything. I'm sorry. And Riley wrote some pretty funny stuff and pretty nasty stuff, deserved. But I do remember that. And I, I don't know if you ever had that happen. Like, I wouldn't want to follow in your footsteps. And say, hey, John Rocker, I want to yeah, talk. Right. <laughs> I had a great way. One of my favorite moments of SI ever is um, Josh Beckett was pitching for the Marlins. And right. he was mad at SI because he brought like seven of his friends to the SI Super Bowl party after he won the World Series for the Marlins in 03. And they wouldn't let him in with all his guys. And he wasn't talking to Sports Illustrated. But I dealt with him and I went down to spring training. And um, he's like, all right, man, I'll talk to you because I know you, blah, blah, blah. And Riley is in the clubhouse and Riley says to me, hey, can you introduce me to Josh Beckett? And I go, sure. And I'm like, hey, Josh, this is Rick. And I go, I don't know why I said this. I said, Rick, did you, you didn't go to the Super Bowl party, did you? And he goes, did I? That was the best party I've ever been to in my life. Holy shit, blah, 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 blah. And he went on probably 20 seconds, but it felt like 10 minute rant about how amazing this party was. And 
O'Reilly's the devil. I, I will I'll grant him. I went out to play golf with him one time. He thought it was hilarious. I tra- I had to go to Denver. I took one club. I hate golf. He loves golf. He lives here. I took one club, the Kaboom, a driver with a head on it the size of like the body of a guitar. So he can't miss the ball. He thought that was hilarious. And that was one of the last times I ever played golf. But um, the other writers who had followed us or came before you, because we would have gone all these different places. So you talk about Josh Beckett and the Marlins, you know, and that that's tough. But I'll tell you the, the worst one ever. And it's one of the reasons I left Sports Illustrated, much as I loved it, was Michael Jordan when he went to play baseball. Now, that was in 1994. He had retired from the Bulls. They'd won three championships. His father had just been killed. People thought it was a, a gambling deal. Nobody knew what it was. Michael's going to play minor league baseball, of all things, because Jerry Reinsdorf owned the White Sox and he owned the Bulls. And anyway, as it turns out, Sports Illustrated decides to put him on the cover of the magazine in the spring. And it's Jordan swinging on the cover of Sports Illustrated, missing a pitch by about a foot. And the headline, I'll never forget, it says, bag it, Michael. And then it says, Michael Jordan and the White Sox embarrass baseball. And two years before that, Michael Jordan had been the SI Sportsman of the Year. He'd come to Chicago, had this beautiful ceremony for him. You get like a, a Grecian urn. That's It was a really cool trophy instead of another glass thing. And he was on the cover of the magazine, a hologram, black and red hologram. He's in silver. His eyes follow you around the room. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he came to that thing with Juanita. He came into this event with all these ad guys, you know, all these swells that SI had brought in. This is a big deal, big, big uh, afternoon lunch and party. And, you know, Mark Mulvoy was there, John Papanek, all these guys, higher ups. And Jordan couldn't have been more accommodating. Signed that thing with silver ink to anybody. I think he signed a couple of them for me, for my my daughters. He glad handed everybody. He's magnificent in his Bigsby and Crothers suit, shoulders this wide, narrow hips, you know, just cuts this figure that's just stunning. And two years later, we say Michael Jordan embarrasses baseball. And I said, oh, no, God, no, we we didn't just do this, did we? Okay, at that moment, Michael Jordan says, you know what? I'm never talking to Sports Illustrated again. And he hasn't. And that was almost 30 years ago. And he has not spoken to SI since. You think this guy carries a grudge? And I'm thinking Steve Wolf wrote that. He wrote the article. And I know Steve, a great guy. But I just said, why? Why did you put the don't use the word embarrass and Michael Jordan in the same headline? And um, I don't know. He's kind of a big deal, wouldn't you say? Went on to win three more NBA championships, still makes what, 150 million a year because of the jump man logo. He made Nike what it is. You won't talk to SI because of that one headline. So I said, I'm not going to spend the rest of my career not talking to one of the most famous athletes in the world, maybe the most famous at that time. So I went to uh, the Sun Times and became a columnist in 1995. I just, I can't, I just can't do this. I can't be here. Because I remember Riley came to town one time and he said, hey, Rick, I'm going to write about Jordan, but he won't talk to me. Could you talk to him and ask him if he would? Because, you know, he didn't know Riley. Riley's a a good guy. And I talked to Jordan. He said, no, I don't think so. No, I I don't think so. Interesting side note of that. Michael Jordan (laughs) played for the Birmingham Barons that year. He hit 202. And people were like, oh, blah, blah, blah. He said, I was like, this guy has not played baseball since high school. He went exactly. to double A baseball, which is no joke, and hit 202 with some actual pop. I'm not saying he was going to wind up the next Harold Baines, 
but that is no embarrassment at all. Jeff, there's some scouts that say, give this guy another year and he'd be in the majors. He hit a home run. I mean, he yep. had to figure out the game again. Nobody could do that. I always thought, listen, if Michael is going to go off for a new sport and he hadn't played baseball since he was like, what, 13, something like that. Imagine how good he could have been at beach volleyball. And I could have taken the guy. He's horrified of, of water. I said, I'll, I'll, any sport I can beat you in one time? He said, no. I said, how about swimming? So, well, I'm not getting in a pool. I could take him, give me a couple of years and make him the Olympic champion in the 50 meter freestyle. I guarantee you it's mostly a start and length and palm size, fast twitch muscles. And if you hadn't been terrified of water, oh my God, the guy was, could have been spectacular. So anyway, he was doing fine at baseball. Well, you wrote a book I'm fascinated about because I kind of hate the guy. You wrote a book with Mike Dicka, Mike Dicka, reflections <laughs> on the 1985 bears and wisdom from duck coach. <laughs> When I say I hate him, I don't hate him. But um, when the when the sweetness book, my biography of Walter Payne came out, he was asked about it on the news, having read literally zero pages of the book and was asked, what would you say to the author if he was here right now? And he literally spit on the ground and said, that's what I'd say to him. You know, we're two liberal guys. We're journalists. Mike Dicka is probably as MAGA as you can get. He's this kind of meatheady type guy. Is he actually a likable figure? He's complex. And listen, he wasn't, I did, while I was writing that book, that's when I found out he was this right-wing guy. Yep. I didn't know that. I, I really didn't. And I, I would be throwing out these kind of liberalisms, whatever. So politics aside, Ditka is a, he, he's complex in that he's two things. Uh, he's civil is what Jim McMahon named him. The civil being a woman that had like, I don't know, 20 personalities or whatever. I've seen Ditka be at a thing, be very outgoing, laughing or whatever. And then when it's, he wants to leave, just stand up. His chair falls over backwards and he just walks out of the room. Doesn't say goodbye, doesn't do anything. So that's part of him. I've also seen him be very funny with people and have really good insights into stuff. But he's all those things. And I'm sorry about your, your sweetness book. I told you, when you came to town, Jeff, I felt so sorry for you. You know, like you were yeah. a pariah. Wait, yeah, Rick, one, you were so nice to me. You actually hosted an event. You know, you're the MC of an event, and you were you were nice enough to stand within 20 feet of me, which, you know, not many were doing. Well, it was a lesson to you and to me. It's like when someone is an icon and people want to believe in them this way, they do not want to hear anything else about him. And Walter Payton, his nickname, Sweetness, is ironic in and of itself. The guy was a vicious football player. And that stiff arm was not sweet at all. But people didn't, and still to this day, don't want to know that he had feet of clay. I mean, you know, that he was human and that he had these foibles and these flaws. We like our heroes to be, you know, black and white. And uh, yeah, I stood by you. Jeff, I was so sad. These guys are like, and you were like, what is going on? Well, Chicago is a provincial town and Walter Payton's got a statue. Okay, enough said. Let me ask you a final question. I'm required to ask everyone on this podcast. In your long career as a sports journalist, what is the best confrontation you've ever had with a player, a coach, administrator, someone you've covered or written about? Two that were kind of frightening. I'll tell you that. One was I was just starting out and Steve Carlton was in the locker room. I, was he with the Phillies, I guess? Or I don't know who he played for at the end. It was in Fort Lauderdale, I think, in spring training. And I was like, you know, 23, something like that. And I went up to him and said, Mr. Carlton, can I ask you a question? In the locker room. And he turned and looked at me and just stared. It's like, 
I thought I was looking at Tony Perkins in Psycho. And that's it. Never said a word and stared at me and like, okay. And I kind of slunk away, you know, my tail way between my legs. It was horrifying. For me, I thought, oh my God, this is what it's all about. I don't know if he was having a bad day or what what the deal was. The other one was the World Series in the uh, way before a game, hours, a couple hours before the game in the dugout. Fans aren't in the stands or anything. And uh, it's Cleveland. And I guess they're playing in Miami. I- I'm thinking they must have been. And um, Albert Bell is in the dugout. And I, I think, uh, what's his name? The-, the USA Today writer, Jared Bell. And he was kind of sitting on the top of the seat. And Albert Bell is like 10 feet from him. And he's kind of talking to him, sort of. And I'm like, whoa, this is different. So uh, Jared gets up and leaves. I may have said hi. So I walk into the dugout and I, I one step in and I say, uh, Albert, I'm, you know, Rick Tellender from the Sun-Times. And he, he again stares at me and he picks up his bat, doesn't lift it over his shoulder, but just has a hold of it, which he didn't, and starts walking towards me. And I literally backed one step out of the dugout and, and walked away. You know, those are different. I, I've confronted almost anybody always even I think people that didn't like me and uh, most of them didn't, I've only had like three athletes call me by name ever. Uh, they don't even know who I am. We have one writer. This is a good story. He writes our prep stories for high schools, done it forever. Michael O'Brien, great guy. I said, do these kids know what the sun times is or what you do? And he said, well, no, um, they came up to me the other day and said, do you write for Twitter? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's an arrow in your heart. Jeff. You're an independent guy. I'm still with newspapers. It's hilarious. Nobody reads them. Do you know this one little paper up in Michigan where we got, we go up in the Upper Peninsula? They actually did what you would think is a joke, but it's not. And I knew it would happen. You can buy bundles of old Antonagon Heralds, Michigan, for like $5 to start fires, to wrap fish, to pack things. And it happens to come with print on it, but don't worry about that. I mean, the only bright side, it's kind of like how with climate change, it's like, well, we're old, so blah, blah, blah. Like, the only bright side is, like, we did come I'll along. Be dead. <laughs> we came along during a good age, at least. I've had a great time. And I, I think, rather than just being bummed out about everything, I got kids and grandkids, you know, little grandkids, eight of them, if you can imagine, running around. I can barely remember their names, little brats all over the place in different states and things. Uh, and I don't want the world to suck for them. I don't want them to hear me always bitching about, well, you know, it used to be like this. Uh, Rick? Thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciated. Huge fan, huge admirer. I've always appreciated your kindness through the yeah. years. Keep your angslinger going, man. I look forward to that. Oh, I will. I want to thank today's guest, Rick Tellender, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Rick on Twitter, at Rick Tellender, and buy Sweet Dreams wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the amazing MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. Remember, keep writing.